Welcome to the OMR Podcast. Scott Galloway has been on OMR stages a couple times before. He's been on the OMR Podcast before. He was meant to be on stage at the OMR Festival this May again together with Kara Swisher for the Pivot Podcast. Obviously, um, things turned out differently these days. And we are um, more than happy to have him on the podcast again. Instead, we spoke with him uh, last Friday direct directly from his home in Florida and he gave us his perspective on the way um, he sees the world in these dynamic and very, very unusual times. Um, and now directly to the podcast with Scott. You're in Florida, right? Yes, I am. I'm uh, sheltering in place in a town called Delray Beach, just between Miami and West Palm Beach. And what's the situation like there? Uh, so it, it's very regional. In cities, uh, New York is now sort of the new epicenter. And Florida is sort of uh, cautiously, it feels like the calm before the storm here in Florida. There's a lot of data saying that Florida might could in fact be the next epicenter, that they believe that it's escalating pretty fast here. So I think we're I think things are quiet before the storm, tense, but so far, you know, we're hoping it stays quiet. And what do you hear from your people in New York? Is that like, is that chaos there already? No, I wouldn't describe it as chaos. I would describe it as a serious situation, but the emergency rooms are very active and the ICUs are very active. But my understanding is they're near capacity, but they haven't, they haven't surpassed capacity. So it's It, it is a serious situation. People in New York are very tense, but also uh, the governor there has done a, done, a, done a great job, and it feels as if they are addressing the issue, if you will. Okay. Um, I mean, what's, what's your perspective on this whole thing? I mean, how long is this going to last, and what's, what, what's the world like that we're going to see after this is over? Well, you're, you guys, I, I don't have any insight into as, you know, when it'll be over. I'm not a doctor or an epidemiologist. I, I'm just trying to urge people to do their part and help flatten the curve. And, you know, we're looking to Germany in terms of trying to understand why the mortality rates are so low in Germany. My understanding is Germany at one point had more cases than Spain, but had uh, only about a, a, just a handful of deaths. So we're trying to understand if it's because the Uh, infections in Germany have been amongst uh, mostly young people, or if it's because your treatments are better, or that your population is healthier. But we're trying to, you know, we're trying to understand, um, you know, what I, my sense is everyone is learning every day. Yeah. And but everybody talks about flattening the curve here in the U.S. across the U.S. and across, I think, about two and a half billion people across the world. There's some sort of lockdown that's taken place. So everyone is. The term is social distancing that everyone is very familiar with, flattening the curve. I, you know, you're, you guys are in Germany. I'm in the U.S. Uh, our grandparents were called to war. We've been called to sit on a couch. It feels, <laughs> as, if we would, it feels as if we should be able to handle this, right? So um, the, the thing about this virus or crises, the terrible thing is they always happen. The wonderful thing is they always end. And the way this ends is that we stay six feet from each other for 14 days or more. So... Um, you know, we're, we're, all, we're all obviously very concerned, as I'm sure you are. It looks like the epicenter has shifted from China to Europe and now to the U.S., and we're just – everyone's just trying to do their part. Um, so anyways, fingers crossed, uh, and obviously we're very hopeful. What, uh, one, one pattern that I hear from, from digital experts here on the podcast is that things that were going to happen anyways over a longer period of time – are now going to happen in an accelerated mode. 
maybe the shift from from um, offline to online, um, maybe the shift towards uh, asset light models, all these things that were in progress anyways now happen faster. Is that something that you would also uh, believe? Yeah, so there's, I mean, the, the the biological metaphor is the right one, and that is the culling of the herd. And that is, this virus is preying on the, the weak and the infirmed biologically, uh, and the, the cohorts that are older and have an underlying health condition are at most risk um, in terms of mortality and sickness. And the same is true economically, that the companies that had weak balance sheets, companies that were didn't have great business to begin with, are most vulnerable. Now, there's a sector... There are certain sectors that have been, regardless of how strong you are, have been devastated. The, if you're an airline right now, there's just no getting around it. It doesn't matter how well managed you are, how much cash you have, uh, you, you're, you're going to need probably some sort of government intervention. But across retail, we're seeing a lot of companies that will go out of business that probably, like as you said, were going to go out of business yesterday. It's, it's really a function of two things. There are just certain industries that have been especially hard hit, where it's hot, whether it's hospitality or air travel. And then within specific sectors, it's a function of your balance sheet strength, how much cash you have on hand, uh, your ability uh, to variableize down your cost structure. So to use an example, a company like Uber is exceptionally affected. Its revenues are hugely impacted in the short run because it's a face-to-face service and people, you know, business is probably off 60 or 70 percent there. But they're able to reduce their costs dramatically because uh, most of their costs are variable. Most of their costs are actually the driver. Whereas a company like a Boeing or a Procter & Gamble, most of their costs cannot be variableized down. So uh, w- those companies have much stronger balance sheets, but their costs can't be variableized. So one, it's specific industries are obviously being very hard hit. Two, yeah, the uh, sector by sector, it's a function of balance sheet strength and your ability to variableize your costs. One of the unfortunate things coming out of this is that some of the biggest players will just accrete more power. And in the U.S., we already have a problem where there's too much power held by a small number of firms. And this is going to only intensify that that imbalance, if you will. You could take the one or two biggest firms in almost every category and they likely come out of this crisis with more market share. And I've been arguing for a long time that the concentration of power amongst a smaller and smaller group of firms is damaging to the economy and job growth. Mm-hmm. What do you, what do you th- think about saving companies like with, with this taxpayer's money? Um, is there like a ranking or is it priorities? What's your – I mean we have a, our own approach here in Germany to who's going to get saved and, and, and under what conditions. What's your approach? So – uh, it's a big topic here. There are obviously industries that employ a lot of people that this is sort of a, you know, kind of a hundred-year flood-like event that probably warrants some sort of government assistance. And you think about the airline industry. On the other hand, if you're a real capitalist, you believe that a company that has prepared for this type of disaster and been more conservative and has aggregated cash probably deserves to not only stay in business, but they deserve to have some of their competitors go out of business. And that is a lot of companies in the U.S. have taken, I mean, as an example, many of the airlines have spent 90, 95% of their free cash flow over the last five years to purchase back stock. So it's sort of, if you keep purchasing back stock and returning cash to shareholders, and then something like this happens, and the government bails you out, it becomes a heads I win, tails you lose moral hazard problem. So you know, this is a difficult question, but I would argue that if if we're real capitalists, the cruel truth of capitalism is you can't reward the winners without punishing the losers. 
And I would argue there's probably a lot of businesses that should pay the price for not being more conservative around their cash spend. And then if we do, in fact, bail out companies, I would argue that it needs to be uh, that the structure is very important and that it shouldn't be grants. It should be what I would call or what I would refer to as some sort of convertible debt, meaning that the company borrows money from the government or taxpayers. And assuming the company survives, that debt can be converted to equity such that the taxpayer can benefit. So after the Great Recession in 2008, we bailed out the banks and we bailed out the automobile companies, but the government and taxpayers actually ended up making money because the structure of the loans were convertible debt. And once those companies survived and came back as the economy returned, the government converted that debt into equity and taxpayers actually uh, walked away with more money than they had invested. And I would argue that the same type of structure is warranted here. I'm I'm curious, what is the structure in Germany? What is the approach there? What can we learn from you guys? I mean, it's it's all in limbo right now. I mean, they're discussing all kinds of solutions, um, but I think there's a, there's a like one notion that's coming in, in, into that in, from the German side is that they they try to to uh, uh, to integrate some kind of like um, uh, visionary approach that includes uh, climate and digitization. Um, requests they're going to imply on the companies that want that wants to get saved. They have to like comply with some kind of like other goals beyond just staying in business and and, and giving uh, jobs to people, but also that they want to like try to to integrate the, the whole climate uh, f fight that we're in, um, anyways, into into the into those packages. And then, I don't know how that's going to work out, but that's at least where the discussion discussion stands right now. Yeah, that's interesting. There was some talk here about, you know, limiting executive compensation, uh, 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 putting a certain amount of money towards uh, climate change. I think the primary condition that's been placed on many of the employers and at least the loans to small business here that have been granted, we just approved a $2 trillion bailout package, is that small businesses can have a big portion of their loans forgiven if they don't lay off anyone yeah. over a certain period of time. So. A big, a big theme around our bailout package here in the U.S. has been to try and encourage employers not to lay off people because we had a jobless claim. Every week we announce our jobless claims, which is the number of people who have submitted paperwork such that they can get unemployment benefits. And at the height of the recession, I believe it was somewhere around six or 700,000 jobless claims were submitted in one week. This week we had three and a half million jobless claims submitted. So this is... This is unprecedented. And what, what's unusual about this that we haven't seen before, and we haven't seen this in Europe and we haven't seen this in the U.S. since World War II, if a company goes into a recession uh, or if, a, if, if we go into a recession, a company might lose 20, 30, 40 percent of its revenues. And say it's doing $100 million a month in revenues and it loses 30 percent of its revenues. So it loses $300 million a month in business. But if it cuts, a cost, if it cuts its cost by 10 or 20 percent, then it loses 10 or 20 million a month. And a lot of companies can survive that. If it goes into depression, it loses 50% of its mm -hmm. revenues. It has to cut 30% of its costs. It loses 20 million a month. This is uh, unprecedented in the sense that there are a lot of businesses, a lot of businesses that have gone from full capacity to zero in a matter of two weeks. Yeah. And very few businesses have modeled out or ever prepared for the notion that they would lose 100% of their revenues. Mm -hmm. So even if they cut their costs by 30 or 40%, which is not easy for a lot of businesses, they're still losing 60 million a month. So 
the notion that we're going from 100, even even during the war, even during World War II, companies were still making money because they were still selling some stuff uh, or they were converted to war machinery, what have you. But in this instance, we have entire companies just literally being turned off like a switch. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I mean, in Germany, we have this one instrument I think that, that you don't have. It's called Kurzarbeit. And it's, I think it's similar to what, what you call furlough. I think um, yeah. it means that, you know, if you can really demonstrate an, an impact uh, th on your company, then you get up to 60% of the salaries paid for by the state for 12 months' time. So you can sort of weather a storm um, if it's just f for a while, um, but you cannot, cannot fire anybody. It's meant to, like, save those jobs. Um, you have to keep everybody on board as long as you do that, but then you get, like, subsidized um, uh, salaries f by the state or so that's the situation here. But what do you think about the impact on, on, on the digital economy? I mean, um, you're also like an expert in marketing. How is marketing going to be different after this? Well, it's hard to imagine how the more strength doesn't, doesn't flow up to the strongest. And that if you think about marketing, Facebook and Google have about, in the U.S., they have about two-thirds share of all digital marketing. And you can imagine them coming out of this crisis with 70 or 75 percent because for example, in the Great Recession, a lot of hospitality companies were forced to stop advertising, and they stopped advertising in print. And what they found was that, is that they didn't miss it that much. And so when they came back, they never returned. Their spending never returned to print. So what is likely going to happen here across the different marketing mediums, whether it's print, television, radio, Google, Facebook, when we're talking about digital, because when we're talking about digital, two out of three dollars of those two companies – You're likely going to see a return to Facebook and Google just as, you know, very quickly. The question is, I think people will just take this opportunity to reevaluate their marketing mix. And while I'd like to think that the companies coming out of this recession will think about new mediums, it, I think it's unlikely. I think they've, they've, they're going to return to the, what they know works, which is Google and Facebook, and also what they can measure and what they can ease back into easily. One of the... Easily, one of the things that's so appealing about these mediums or these platforms is not only are they effective, but they can be calibrated. And that is, if you wanted to market online marketing rock stars tomorrow, you could spend $100, you could spend $14,000, and then look at the data that night and dial it back to $11,000 or $13,700 the next day to market it based on the performance. Whereas if you decided to run print ads, where if you decided to run television or radio ads, the lag or the latency between spend and results and your ability to calibrate based on those results is much more opaque. It's much more crude. So as people come out of this and are obviously a little bit more cost conscious, the ability to measure, you know, there's a term in business, what gets, you can't manage what you can't, what you can't measure. And these mediums are just much more easy to measure and calibrate. So I don't think this is a good thing for the economy, but I think you're going to see a lot of services firms, a lot of smaller ad agencies, a lot of print companies, a lot of smaller media companies come out of this much, much weaker. And the traditional players, big tech, are probably going to come out stronger. Keep in mind, as dramatic as the decline has been in the stock market here, you know, most of big tech is only back to where it was in September of last year. So everyone talks about the market plunge. You know, Amazon has plunged to where it was in November of 2019. Facebook has given up about a year's worth of gains. Apple is back to where it was in September of, of, 19, of, of 2019. 
So the company, big techs thus far, you know, they've been damaged, but it has not been historic damage. Whereas some of the companies that the iconic companies of yesteryear, the Boeings of the world, some of the real estate companies have lost 50, 60, 70 percent of their value. Talk a little bit about um, those those big four companies that, I mean, you focus on them many times, had a book on them. Um, do you think they all be like similar in their reaction or in, in, in the new world? Or do you see any like obvious differences between how those four companies come out of this? Well, so let's take them case by case. Uh, Apple was the hardest hit early because their supply chain is so dependent upon China, but China looks as if it's recovered just as quickly. Uh, traffic to malls is supposedly 90% of where it was pre-crisis. So it looks as if their supply chain is back online, and there might be some delays with the iPhone 12. But it's hard to imagine. I mean, essentially, Apple is the ultimate luxury good, and that is The one and a half billion wealthiest people in the world have a relationship with Apple. And if there's probably one group of people, and if you look at the top 10% of income earners globally, on a percentage basis or on a gross basis, they will have come out of this crisis having lost more capital on a gross basis than any other cohort because they had the most to lose. But they're going to come out of this, you know, if someone is worth a million dollars and they come out of this crisis worth five or six hundred thousand dollars, they're not going to give up their iPhone and communications and media and entertainment, all the things that Apple does and also signaling around your worth and your attractiveness as a mate. I think that's that's what essentially what the <laughs> Apple brand does. People aren't going to give that up. So I, I fail to see how Apple doesn't come back almost as strong or stronger. Uh, if you talk about Amazon, Amazon comes out of this much stronger, not only financially, but reputationally. Uh, Amazon is now shipping COVID-19 diagnostic tests in the UK. The operations around Amazon, their leadership, their decisions or their decisiveness, they've, they've stopped taking delivery of any non-essential items such that they can ensure their supply chain could deliver essential items. A lot of people who have been following stay-at-home or shelter-in-place orders, are using Amazon as kind of their lifeline around essential goods. Uh, there's a lot of very uh, gripping stories about uh, the warehouses at Amazon, warehouse workers taking a lot of risks on the front on the front lines and uh, obviously putting themselves in a position where they're being exposed to the virus, but they are working exceptionally hard. So not only does Amazon, I think, come out of this stronger financially and gain share in retail, Because to your earlier point, there are a lot of retailers that were sick, had underlying health conditions, and are just going to be just disappear from the planet because of this of this uh, of this crisis. Amazon comes out of this stronger reputationally because they're seen as being so strong. Their supply chain is so robust. They are serving such an important role in people's lives right now. There are just there are a ton of retailers that just can't ship products. There are a ton of retailers that have closed their doors, and Amazon is open for business. And in some instances, continuing to get people essential products within 48 hours. Talk about Facebook. Facebook doesn't come out of this stronger reputationally. They probably come out of it weaker because they're still unable or unwilling to train their algorithms to not spread false information. And there's obviously a lot of propaganda and false information about the virus. And it, that kind of false information thrives and gets spread very quickly on Facebook that has refused to put in place the requisite safeguards to ensure that false information doesn't spread faster than wildfire. No virus spreads as fast as fear, and obviously there's a lot of fear and a lot of fake information. Mm -hmm. And then I think Google comes out of this um, as strong or stronger. So big tech has lost about 
I don't know, somewhere between one and one and a half trillion dollars in market cap. If you start talking about offense and you asked about a post-corona world, a lot of people, a lot of hedge funds, a lot of individual investors have asking me where I would invest. Kind of the safe investment, if you will. I mean, there's going to be some companies that have been hit hard. They're going to survive. They're going to go up two or threefold in the next 12 or 24 months. But that is more that is more risky because some of those companies will go away. They won't make it out of this alive. If you're looking for what I'd call a 20 or 30% gain in the next 12 months from where we are now, it's hard to imagine a bundle that would be on a risk-adjusted basis a better bet than big tech right now because they have unbelievably strong balance sheets. They continue to attract the best human capital. They're going to not only continue to attract the best human capital, they're going to be able to sweep up small tech companies for pennies on the dollar. They're going to be able to sweep up the best people in the world who are going to be less or more risk averse coming out of this and like the idea of going to work for a big company where they get health insurance and stock options from a company they know will survive. So those companies, if from an investor standpoint, from a, on a risk-adjusted return basis, uh, quite frankly, they just make great investments right now. You, you gave all, I mean, I saw on Twitter, I think, or one of your other podcasts, I saw that you that you also uh, said a more risky bet is, is cruise companies like Carnival and these, these cruise companies. But who knows if they're going to stay in business at all, right? I mean, if they stay in business, they're probably going to win. But if not, they you're going to lose everything, right? Well, yeah, there's sort of a corona trade, and that is going after companies or investing in companies that um, are really are in sectors that have just been massively hit, whether it's live events, whether it's hospitality, hotel companies, airlines, and a place like Carnival Cruises. Now, the bet there, you know, I would argue that if you wanted to take a small amount of your portfolio and create a basket of those companies, that you might end up with, uh, it's obviously risky, but you might end up with outsized returns because if the government bail, if the governments provide assistance to the airlines, which they have done, if these companies don't go bankrupt and the bondholders don't seize the assets, it's hard to imagine. As long as they keep making old people, cruises are going to be very, very popular. As long as the global economy, globalization and our desire to travel and wealth isn't going to subside. The airlines might take 12 or 24 months to recover, but it's hard to believe that they don't. I believe kind of two, three years out, air travel will be ahead of where it is now. And it's hard to imagine that people don't continue to want to spend time with friends and go to concerts. Uh, so that that kind of corona trade, if you will, and that is going after companies and sectors hardest hit with a basket of companies that have been really damaged recognizing that some may just go away. And when I say go away, the businesses won't go away, but the bondholders will own the companies because they're not able to service their debt and their equity gets wiped out. But I think a decent, riskier trade, if you will, for real upside, potential upside, would be to put together a basket of good companies that have been hit because of this of the sector they're in and then see if, in fact, they do survive. Because if, if these companies just survive – they're going to probably double or triple in the next 12 or 24 months. So it's a very risky bet, but it's all about how much risk you want to expose yourself to. Um, uh, let's talk politics a little bit. I mean, you've been a supporter of Warren, then of Bloomberg. Um, they all uh, have dropped out of the race. Um, what do you think of Biden now? Well, so I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Democrat. I believe that one of the most frightening things about what's happened in our politics is the last four years, and I think if the virus, uh, COVID-19, treats us anything, is that greatness is in the agency of others. And when we think about, I think one of the most important alliances in the history of mankind is the North, North Atlantic Treaty. And that is, you know, Europe and the U.S. together have kept the peace, largely kept the peace as allies for the last 
70, 80 years. And I'm very disappointed that the current administration and current leadership has shown a lack of respect for that alliance. And standing with our brothers and sisters in Europe has been tremendously beneficial economically, psychologically, uh, militarily, geopolitically. And the lack of regard that this administration has has shown for our brothers and sisters and our allies in Europe, I think is not only dangerous, I think it's just plain stupid. So I'm inclined, I'm obviously going to back, uh, back Vice President Biden. Was he the person I would have picked? Probably not. But um, I think we're in a situation that's somewhat historic here. Uh, we have never seen, in my view, in, in at least in my lifetime, one individual do the sort of damage and quite frankly, take the brand America down so far. I would like to think that until the until the Trump administration, a lot of people viewed America as being clumsy or narcissistic or quick quick to um, quick to judge. But I think the majority of the world saw America as the good guys. That we might get it wrong a lot, but our heart was in the right place. And a lot of people still, at the end of the day, like the idea of working with Americans or someday even visiting or maybe even living in America. And unfortunately, in just three and a half years, I think that has changed. I think we're no longer the good guys. And I think that's very dangerous. So I am I am very committed to getting, I want to say I like Joe Biden, but I'm more committed to getting President Trump out of office and ensuring that he's a one-term president. I think, you know, I know Angela Merkel, like any politician, has her supporters and her detractors. I think she's wonderful. I, I, I enjoyed the relationship and the tight bond that her and President Obama had, because I think it reflected the tight bond that people, uh, German citizens and U.S. citizens feel for each other. I am married to a woman who's German who was raised in Munich. And I think it's a to have two nations like that as allies is tremendously powerful. And to, to not have respect for that type of partnership and at the same time provide comfort to our enemies, to the Russias of the world, to the North Koreas of the world, I think is dangerous for all of us. So uh, do I, is Biden my man? No, but he's my man now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, but still, I mean, despite all the chaos or all the uncertainty, it seems like Trump's Trump's uh, numbers in the polls is still like strong, right? I mean, even though he's like so back and forth on how to handle the crisis and like not being a good leader in the situation, still he seems to have the support of the American people. How is that possible? It's very strange. And one of the things that's become um, pretty, um, pretty obvious or pretty stark here, at least I didn't realize it, is that people like me who live on the coast, who grew up in Los Angeles, went to graduate school in the Bay Area and then live in New York, that we live in a different world and have a different viewpoint on the world than the people who live in the middle of the country. And you're right. I was shocked. A lot of people, the president right now gets a 50% approval rating for how he's handled the crisis. And as far as I can tell, the crisis such far in the United States has been a mix at the federal level of, of not untruths or just outright lies, inaccuracies, and mixed with a strong cocktail of incompetence. Uh, and he has come under a decent amount of scrutiny from the media for that. But there is something about Uh, president it's seen as attempting to address what is a crisis or they call it a wartime president that people like and it exudes strength. So I'm not sure that he doesn't come out of the stronger, which I, like you, find kind of incredible. But people are immediately drawn to their leaders during a period of crisis. I think almost every president uh, during a war in the last 70 years has come out of it stronger with the exception of Lyndon Johnson. 
So it'll be interesting to see, but it's a real wake-up call for what I'll call, you know, progressives or people that li- believe in a liberal democracy in the U.S. or people who believe in globalization or people who have tremendous uh, reverence for some of the partnerships and allies we have. There are a lot of people in the United States that do not share our values, and America has become. I don't want to call it two Americas because people because we've always been diverse. But I think people such as myself just never realized how diverse or how divergent our viewpoints were. So by no means, I, I think a lot of my friends felt that this crisis would be the nail in Donald Trump's presidency's coffin. And I'm not sure that's true. So we'll see. But there, you know, the media has provided a lot of scrutiny on how poorly this crisis has been handled by the administration. Uh, but if he, you know, to say, to believe that there's not time for him to recover, I think is to be naive. I think if we do get through this without too much collateral damage, he has an opportunity to be seen or perceived as a wartime president that made some early stumbles but recovered. So time will tell. Maybe a, a couple of words on what you do these days. Um, I mean, when you, I think, first became a, a household name in German digital circles. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, you ran a company called L2 that you then sold uh, to Gardner. And, uh, and then you've been, uh, you know, an analyst on started the, the Pivot podcast together, together with Kara Swisher. Um, and now just recently you launched your own podcast show. So another a second podcast, the Prof G Show, that's part of a company that you founded now that's called Section 4. Explain a little bit what the Prof G Show does and what Section 4 is going to do. Well, thanks for asking. So I got very lucky. Uh, I started a business called L2. I sold three years ago. And as much as it hurts to watch my portfolio, my stock portfolio go down, the best trade I made was I sold my company three years ago. I did really well. I feel very fortunate that I was able to do that because there aren't going to be any small businesses sold for a while unless it's a distress sale over the next 12, 12 or 24 months. Uh, I, I'm very I'm fascinated by online education. You asked me what might some of the changes be in a post-corona world. The way I would describe it, loosely speaking, is there's going to be a much greater move towards distributed services. Now, what do I mean by that? Part of the fear around this crisis is that the healthcare system gets overwhelmed. And the reason it might be overwhelmed is healthcare is largely concentrated around physical spaces, specifically doctor's offices and hospitals. And so in this crisis, one of the things we've been doing with 90, 95% of the people diagnosed with COVID-19 is we've asked them to stay or recover at home. And I wonder if moving forward, we're going to see an incredible distribution of diagnostic and treatment services around healthcare. So this notion of telemedicine, I think it's going to get unbelievable traction, your ability to diagnose, treat uh, minor and even maybe major illnesses in your home such that we don't have this choke point of doctor's offices or hospitals. In addition, I think that's going to take place in education. And that is the constraint around education in the U.S., and Germany does a better job of this, is we are We are very much a caste system in the sense that universities or the brand of a university helps identify who you are in the caste in the United States. We like to think we're meritocracy, we're not. And the way we maintain exclusivity around a certain cohort of universities, specifically Ivy League universities and then a small number of universities that have global brands, is that we, we choke the supply and we use space as the arbiter or the regulator. In other words, NYU can only handle a certain number of freshman seats because we're space constrained. And I wonder if this is an opportunity to unleash or significantly expand that capacity 
uh, through distributed education. I'm not saying we'll all move online, but we might have capacity. We might be able to double our capacity at our best universities by offering a hybrid model where people do 40, 60, 80% of their instruction online and then come on campus for more social or more group meetings or more uh, gatherings that are more important in person, if you will. So I think online education is probably, this crisis may uh, not only help telemedicine, but I think it might provide sort of the catalyst or the, the starting gun for online education. And I've started a company uh, called Prop G. We do something called a strategy sprint. We'll be launching a brand sprint. We had our first class of 600 people last week or two weeks ago. We're starting another class of April in April of uh, strategy sprint. And the idea is a world-class education that rivals in NYU or Berkeley for a fraction of the price. It's both a mix of live instruction and asynchronous videos online where you do team teamwork, cohorts, et cetera. And it's two to three weeks instead of 12 to 14 weeks, which is a typical semester here. So I'm focused on online education. Thank you for bringing up the Prop G Show. I now have two podcasts, Pivot and the Prop G Show. So there's no – to resist is futile. I, am, I'm, I have surrounded you. It's, it's impossible to avoid me now. It's really it's, – it's absolutely horrible. But it's great content all the time. It's great content all the time. I mean I can only recommend listening to Pivot. I can recommend uh, reading your newsletter, um, No Mercy, No Malice, every Friday. So there's, there's a lot of content coming from you. How many people work for you now at Section 4 at, at the Prof. G Show? Is that like 10 or already 30, 40? How big is the show right now? Yeah, you're exactly right. We're about 12 full-time employees and about a dozen uh, contractors helping with things like technology and production values, et cetera. So more importantly, tell me about online marketing rock stars. <laughs> when has it been rescheduled for? Um, it's it's for the 4th and 5th of May next year. So hoping by then we'll be able to do like mass participation events again, 60,000 people coming next May. So beginning of next May. And um, I mean, I'm watching the news very closely and I'm still scared that my, that might even be too early. I don't know. I mean, sometimes I think we should have moved it to the, to, to the fall and then the next news coming out and I think, oh, whoa, maybe even next May is, is, is too early. I don't know. Huh? So we're, we, haven't, we haven't rescheduled. We're just moving right to the next date. So next May is, is the date. And do you live in Hamburg? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I live in Hamburg. And what's the mood like there? What's the mood like there? It's very calm, very calm. Um, I think right now there's the there's, there's not much there's not that much to do actually in the in those emergency rooms. I mean, I, t I talk to friends here that are doctors, and um, they say that it's there's not that much more happening than there would be usually be happening at this time of the year. So everything is prepared for a long time now. We're like already like in a, in a lockdown for two weeks, um, but still, there's, it seems like uh, the complete like crisis in terms of like people dying. So far, that hasn't happened. But like the politicians keep everybody at home, and still like the 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 the, the um, uh, topic is still we are still before the storms. Wait, wait, it's still going to come. We're still before the wave, um, so nobody knows. But you he here and there, you hear the first people like now speaking up and, and complaining about the situation, being like, "Look, um, nothing's going to happen. We have to go get the economy back and running." So it's it's like in this in this this mixture of like everything is okay. Um, and, and people are now trying to get back to real life. But the sense is that everything is going to be that way at least until Easter. And then after Easter, it looks like maybe we're going to like experience a lift of these bands. Well, from an outsider standpoint, and you know, sometimes the perception is different than the reality, but the perception is, is that as always, Germany has been very sober, very data-driven, and is ex exuding competence. And 
you know, you're, my understanding is Angela Merkel was a quantum chemist, <laughs> and she was the first person to kind of say 60%, 70% of a, the citizens may get this, but we're going to be okay. And the numbers have really been striking coming out of Germany, that the mortality rates are so incredibly, uh, you know, incredibly low. So as always, Germany, you know, appears to be approaching this with their typical competence and professionalism. So, But trust me, if, uh, you, if you know, you'd be reading German social media, if you'd be reading like um, what's, what's being uh, like, you know, posted here on all those platforms, uh, you'd, you'd be thinking there's complete chaos going on and complete like warfare, and, and it's, which is not happening. But I mean, those, yeah. those, those platforms give you the feeling right now. It's, um, I think one thing maybe you can like share your opinion on that is, I mean, this is obviously a gigantic media topic. I think like all the news websites, they never had as much traffic as they have these days. Um, how much of this whole thing could maybe be related to the fact that it's such a strong like news topic and has all the all the aspects of, of what makes a news. It's it's new, it's it's close to you, it's it's surprising, it's it's potentially deadly. Everything that makes a news is in this. Um, how much you know does this contribute to the to this whole crisis? There's no doubt about it. It's just been true of media for a long time. And the term here in the U.S. is if it bleeds, it leads. And the more dramatic the headline, the more upsetting, the more frightening, the more likely you are to click on it. And the algorithms, at least online, are, and also editors, are trained to get and compensated and have an economic interest in getting as much viewership and as many clicks, which leads to a certain level of, I don't want to call it panic, but um, a bias towards the extreme, a bias towards the hysterical. So I think not only are these 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 platforms aren't doing anything that traditional media hasn't done. They're just better at it, and it can just they can just uh, spread this type of terror and panic uh, faster. But the media, I think, on the whole, at least here in the U.S., and I don't know if that's true, have been played an important role here in terms of highlighting what is going on, uh, what is being addressed, and what isn't. So. I would argue on the whole, this has been a victory for old media. Online media, especially Facebook, will continue to get more scrutiny. Um, I like Twitter. I actually do get a lot of my information and good data from Twitter. I think they've done a pretty good job with this. But I think we're going to look at a lot of our institutions, our media, uh, after this is over and try and examine how do we use this corona as a vaccination, if you will, and that is the basis of a vaccination as you expose the corpus to a little bit of the problem such that it comes back stronger and can handle the virus moving forward. And it sort of puts your immunity system on alert. And, you know, the, the optimistic viewpoint here is that corona does, does do a lot of damage, but on a global basis doesn't do that much damage. And maybe we come out of this with a greater appreciation for our health services, a greater appreciation for how important cooperation is, a greater appreciation for how important it is to ensure uh, certain agencies in our government are funded well, a greater appreciation for the comity of man and a recognition that this virus doesn't care about political ideology, it doesn't care about borders. All it cares about is our ability to bind together and to address this as one entity. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually hopeful that maybe we come out of this, or I'd like to think we come out of this stronger. Okay. Scott, thanks. You, I, I know you have to go. Um, you have a lot of podcasts to do and a lot of you know, business to build. Um, I want to say thank you for doing this. Uh, we, we would have loved to have you here in May. Um, hopefully, it's, it's just postponed until next year. Um, we'll be in touch. We'll try to get you over. For the, in the meantime, 
I can only recommend to everybody who wants to like follow what you think, what you do, follow you on Twitter, listen to Pivot, listen to the Prof G show. Uh, we remain your fans here in Hamburg. Thanks so much, guys. I look forward to seeing you in May in one of the great cities in the world, Hamburg. Yeah. Thanks so much. <laughs> All right. Okay. Then. See you then. Yeah. Take care. Stay safe. Bye now. Bye-bye.